iHeartRadio presents Inside the Studio. I'm your host, Joe Levy. For this episode, we went on the road to Winnipeg, where the temperatures are frigid, even in September. And it's apparently illegal to serve a burger anything other than well done. We went in search of historic Paul, Paul McCartney. And he told us about how the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's helped inspire work on his new album, Egypt Station, why he likes to walk the streets of New York by himself, and why the recording of the White Album itself, now getting a box set 50th anniversary release, may not have been quite as bad as Beatles legend has it. Egypt Station is McCartney's first studio album in five years, since 2013's new. It's gotten rave reviews, though it won't exactly change the truism that McCartney's post-Beatles music is most undeniable when the cream is skimmed for best-of collections or playlists. But the comparison to his peers is instructive. Bob Dylan hit a late career stride producing himself, starting in 2001 with Love and Theft. For his last three albums, Dylan has stuck to covers of Tin Pan Alley standards. The Rolling Stones have relied on the same producer, Don Was, for the last 24 years, and their last album, Blue and Lonesome, was a collection of old-school blues songs. McCartney, who describes himself as still very competitive in a recent GQ cover story, beat them both to the covers thing. He did 50s rock and roll with 1999's Run Devil Run, which you should definitely hear, and he did standards in 2012 with Kisses on the Bottom, which you should definitely skip. The producers for New and Egypt Station include Paul Epworth, Mark Ronson, Greg Kirsten, and Ryan Tedder guys who have made some of the biggest hits of recent years with Adele, Bruno Mars, Sia, Beyonce, that kind of thing. If Egypt Station is McCartney's first ever solo album to enter the charts at number one, that's partly because the charts have changed in the streaming era and partly because the dude is seriously trying. Egypt Station has a fair number of what Paul once called silly little love songs, except some of them, like For You, are sex songs. And though he's not usually thought of as making protest or political songs, the album has its share of those, too. Three, if you count the anti-bullying song, Who Cares? You might enjoy the swampy groove of People Want Peace but think it's wishful thinking, Although you might also think, what's wrong with that? But the song, despite repeated warnings, sticks a little harder. It uses nautical themes, what should we do with the drunken sailor, red sky in the morning, sailor's warning, to paint Donald Trump's presidency as an out-of-control ship of state. And it was inspired in part by Trump's climate change denial. It doesn't seem like people have connected this with another song you did, uh, motivated by climbing change, Big Boys Bickering. Yeah, that was quite a few years ago. But it, same you, thing. You've it, been doing your homework, haven't you? An American, I have. It's, yeah. it's what they pay me for. 
it's an American president, again, refusing to sign a climate accord, but in this case, uh, George H.W. Bush in 1992. Mm-hmm. So this is an important issue to you. Well, you know, the thing is, I think everyone like me who believes in climate change, and that's a lot of people, were looking at these climate accords and these, these meetings. There was one in Japan. There was one in Copenhagen. And, you know, as these came up, we'd all be looking at it and going, oh, this will be the one. We're going to do something about it. Everyone's going to get together. All the nations are going to agree that, you know, we've got to figure it out. And then it would fail. And oh, I don't believe it. America and China didn't sign it. And it was so disappointing, you know, that um, finally when Paris arrived, it was like, yay, can't believe it, you know. And then Trump pulls out of it. It's like, ooh, you know, that was like really disappointing. But, um, you know, the thing is, as far as I'm concerned, it is a reality. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You know, we're getting this freak weather. And you could say, as some some people who deny climate change, say, well, you know, there's always been freak weather. It's always been, you know, maybe it's just more of the same. But... I don't know. I believe scientists, you know, I don't think they study a bit harder than I do. And they do have science on their side. (laughs) They're they're clever, man. You know, but the science does indicate that if you warm up the planet, you're going to get these effects. So, yeah, uh, I was in Japan, actually, and I saw in a newspaper, I saw this phrase, despite repeated warnings. I can't remember what it was about now. It's just about something else. But I thought, yeah, that's a good phrase. Despite repeated warnings. And so the, I, I made the song up about that. And in the chorus, when you say, how can we stop them? Grab the keys, lock them up. Mm-hmm. Are you thinking of those locker up chants directed at Hillary Clinton at the Trump rallies? I wasn't actually, you know, but um, like it kind of plays into it, doesn't it? You know, you're writing a song, so it's not always that logical. You're just writing a song. So whatever fits, you know, you, you start off maybe very logical. And then you give yourself the freedom to roam, you know. So uh, I wasn't actually thinking that. I was thinking, what did we do with the drunken sailor? I must admit. And I was hoping no one would spot that. But they did. (laughs) Despite repeated warnings Our danger's up ahead Well, the captain wasn't listening to what was said. Now, shortly after we were done talking, Paul went on stage and played a nearly three-hour set, 39 songs, 23 of them Beatles songs, three from Egypt Station, and the rest drawn from the other 24 studio albums he's recorded solo or with wings, except for the one song he recorded with Kanye West, and another one he recorded in 1958 with the Quarrymen, his band with John Lennon and George Harrison before the Beatles. Three hours, 39 songs. Even for a guy who's not 76 years old, that is a solid night's work. It's roughly twice the number of songs played lately by the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan, both still out on the road and long may they run. And it's not even counting the one-hour sound check McCartney played earlier in the night for those who bought VIP tickets 
So that's a grand total of about four hours of playing guitar, bass, piano, and, during his version of George Harrison's something, ukulele. For those keeping score at home, four hours, that's about half of the marathon eight-hour sets the Beatles put in in Hamburg in 1960 when McCartney was just 20 years old. That's pretty remarkable. The rock stars of the 60s used to represent an ideal of freedom for their audience. The freedom to live however you wanted outside of society's rules. And in their septuagenarian years, these guys represent a different kind of freedom. The freedom to keep on keeping on. To be able to do in your 70s what you used to do in your 20s. And no one may be a better or more joyous representation of that than Paul McCartney. Score one for vegetarianism. McCartney's work ethic may come from his dad, Jim, who put in 10-hour days as a cotton broker in Liverpool and also played trumpet and piano, leading a group called Jim Max Jazz Band. It goes without saying that Paul does not have to do any of this. It's not just that he changed the world with the Beatles, creating the context that pretty much all of pop music unfolds in today. And, and by the way, I mean that in the most literal sense. The penchant for microhooks that defines current modern pop is prefigured by McCartney's prodigious gift for melody. Take Band on the Run from 1973. There must be four songs worth of hooks packed into the first 80 seconds. Guitar. Synthesizer. Bass vocal. And that's just the intro. Well, really, it's just the first intro because then there's another intro section with another set of guitar, synth, bass, and vocal hooks. Only this time you could count the drum part too. Then there's a horn fanfare. And then song actually starts. So in a different way than his peers, McCartney has an eternal relevance. But the other thing that makes how hard he works so striking is that McCartney has long been touted as one of the most wealthy figures in the music industry, with a net worth estimated at $1.2 billion. According to Forbes, he added another $54 million to that pile last year when he was finishing up the 77 dates of his one-on-one tour making him the 13th highest-earning artist in the music business on a list topped by Diddy, Beyonce, and Drake. There's that eternal relevance again. As you're about to find out, Paul McCartney has a pretty optimistic view of the world, and you can hear it just in the way he pronounces the word Winnipeg. At one point, he told us that the Beatles never argued about music. If they had an argument, it was about other stuff. And then later... He told us about an argument that they had about music. Does he contradict himself? Maybe. He was also there. I think he knows better than you and I. So let me get out of the way, because I've always wanted to say this. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, welcome to Inside the Studio. Thank you, Joe. 
or a very special edition of uh, Backstage at the uh, Paul McCartney Show. Okay, and here we are in Winnipeg. In Winnipeg. Winnie yeah. the Peg. A few months ago, I'm walking up Park Avenue, and I, I pass a guy coming down the street who looks remarkably like Paul McCartney. Yeah. Park Avenue and 89th Street. I think can't be Paul McCartney. No one with him. No one around. Mm. Did a double take. It was Paul McCartney. It couldn't have been him. <laughs> but it was. You were just yeah. walking down the street by yourself yeah, well, in New I York. Yeah, I do. I walk down streets there for walking down. I've heard that. It's yeah, for no, the cars I do. that drive I, down. You know, I like to get out and about and people say, oh, no, you know, you've got to have acres of security behind you and stuff. But I like to just get out, you know, just so you feel like yourself instead of like uh, a rock star. Are there times you do like to feel like a rock star? Uh, you know, when I do the show, that's good. But then, you know, you need to balance it so you get off the stage and maybe, you know, like you say, you're walking somewhere. Uh, so I like to just get out like I always did when I was a kid. So, it, you know, it just it keeps me sane. And it's it's the same feeling as when I was a kid, just walking around. Uh, only difference is I get recognized. Everyone reaches in their pocket immediately for to, the phones. To take a fight, right. You know. But no, I got, you know, quite a lot of freedom actually and I, I value it. And then, you know, if I'm out at a restaurant and stuff with my wife, someone might come over and say, can I have a photograph? I say, oh, not there, not just now, you know. It's a private moment. And most people are very cool and understand it. So I like to keep that, you know, private bit of my life. And then I like the other bit even more because it's like, wow, this is cool. The other bit, being in public, being on stage. Yeah. You have to like it. You are playing these three-hour shows. Yeah. We just saw a one-hour sound check, and that's something that people don't actually know, that many concerts are preceded by this one-hour sound check. I, yeah. I think you have no set list for that. Many of those songs aren't in the set. Right, yeah. No, we always do that. I mean, because it's good because we need to check the instruments we're going to use uh, just to make sure they're all plugged in, they all work. And, I mean, there was a little moment there. It normally doesn't screw up too much, but our keyboard player, his Moog, didn't work. So that's good. That's what a sound check's for. Instead of just doing all the numbers from the show, which kind of spoils the show for us because then we get a bit bored doing the numbers again, we just use the same instruments we're going to use, but we switch the numbers about. We do any old thing, you know. So we'll do kind of like skiffle things, folk things, early rock and roll things, like little solely things. We, we heard you do Midnight Special tonight, which was yeah. kind of amazing. And we always do Midnight Special, yeah, what we often do. You know, you've got certain songs that go way back before I started even playing, you know. I think that's like a big Bill Brunsey song, so he's an old blues singer. And they're just songs you learn along the way, and you like them. So if you get an opportunity at something like this where there's a sound check, all you really need to do is just make sure everything's working. Then you can indulge yourself and play something like that, you know, and it's nice. keeps it all fresh. You know, talking about the songs you do know, there's something I wanted to ask you about. In the set list now is In Spite of All the Danger. Yeah. The first song recorded by the Quarrymen mm -hmm. in 1958. Oh, my God. So it's now 60 years old. Yeah. And that can't be true. That's before my time. <laughs> I will say for those just listening at home, he could pull that off because it does look like he's not old enough to have written no, that song. Not really, but thank you. 
But that said, the amazing thing that I realized is that, you know, you're performing songs from your, your newest record, Egypt Station, and mm-hmm. the very first thing you ever recorded. Mm-hmm. So the audience tonight will hear 60 years yeah. of Paul McCartney songs. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it, it is crazy, you know. It's, um, I've been enjoying playing for that long. And when I do... That song, In Spite of All the Danger, which was just the first little demo we ever did with the Beatles before we got a record contract or anything. So I always imagine us all going to this little studio in Liverpool, all paying a pound each for a five-pound demo and um, doing this little song, you know. And it's it's so ancient that it's great for me because it's like, well, it is. It's like reaching back into your childhood. So it'd be like somebody maybe listening to this, thinking of when they were on the beach when they were one, and they say, oh, what a great memory, you know. So it, it makes it special for me just thinking that, wow, you know, it goes back really before we ever went down to Abbey Road, before we got a record contract. Before you'd been to Hamburg, right? I mean, Before we'd been to Hamburg, yeah. So it's a great memory for me, and I like doing it because uh, we get the audience involved on that one, you know, so we have fun with it. Uh, it is nice to be able to say this is the very first thing we ever did, first record I was ever involved with. And then we come right up to date and we say, and now this is like the most recent. Somehow it seems to fit together, you know. You know, so that's twice now that you've mentioned drawing on those childhood feelings. First when we mm. were talking about walking around by yourself mm-hmm. and now when we're talking about playing the song in spite of all the danger. Mm. Is that a, a wellspring for you, going back to that time or, or holding on to that energy? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. In the Beatles, even when we were like maybe 20, 24 years old or something, in the height of the Beatles, we often would, if we were trying to work out something on a song or what we were going to do with a recording, we'd often say, what would we have done when we were 17? And we'd check back to our 17-year-old selves, who we thought like were like the coolest opinion in the world. Well, we would have said, yeah, do it, yeah, do it, man. Or, no way, that, that's no good, you know. So we, you always refer to that period. You know, it's your formative period. It's when you get a lot of your ideas. And in my case, if you're writing songs, those memories are very rich wells of inspiration. Mm. So, you know, I can just think, Wow, I remember walking along the road with our guitars on our backs, me and John, just before we were famous, you know, and me writing letters to people, Dear Sir, we are a rock combo, and, you know, we would love to play at your place, you know. So all that sort of stuff, it's kind of like magic for me. I think also because of how far I've come. So you got that very early, innocent period, and then... We get famous with the Beatles. Well, before that, we go to Hamburg, as you say, and then we get famous with the Beatles, and then we get the American fame, and then we make records, and we we go through our various phases. So it's a long, long, long journey. And then right now, you know, here I am, you know, making a new album, Egypt Station, and lo and behold, it goes to number one in America, you know. You can imagine, you know, we're partying that night was a party. Well, see, I wanted to ask you about that. Egypt Station enters the charts at number one. So I guess that yeah. if you're keeping score at home, that's your first record to debut at number one. 
Since the Beatles. Since the Beatles. Yeah. And the first number one in, I believe, 36 years. So what was the party? What was the celebration? Oh, well, you know, the great thing was, after the show sometimes, if the guys don't have to load out, if they're all in a place, and we're going to play the place tomorrow, mm. which was that occasion, I'll say, okay, let's all get together, have a little drink, have something to eat, and we get the crowd in, so we all get to hang with each other, because it's a bit like a family, you tour family, you know. Mm. So we'll all get together, and then our DJ, who comes with us on the tour, he'll DJ some nice dance music and stuff. So we were going to have that little party anyway. And then suddenly that afternoon, right after sound check, on my phone, I get the message, bang, congratulations, record's gone in the morning. Ah, and I'm just about to go to the dressing room. I stop and go, oh, oh, wait a minute. Hey, guys. I announce to everyone, hey, it's really number one, you know. So that party that evening, that was special because we had a real great reason to celebrate. We were going to celebrate anyway, just having a party. But... Uh, it became really special. We danced the night away, baby. I was talking to someone at your label in Los Angeles, Capital. Yeah. And they Good said... people. Well, they said, yeah. back at you, they said, we're amazed at how hard this guy works, 76 years old, three-hour concerts, but also he's out there doing things, taking advantage of opportunities we bring him, if we bring them to a 23-year-old artist, they might complain. Paul's like, yeah, let's do it. Hmm. What, what I always do, you, promoting a record used to be quite boring because hmm. they would trot out the same old things. you got to go there. you got to do 36 interviews. Like, oh my oh, we're going to take you to someplace central in Europe where all the and, European territories can come in. and yep. then you, So it becomes that like was a, how it, that's a press really how it yeah. was. That was Cologne. They always would say, you're going to Cologne. I said, why Cologne? I said, well, it's in the middle of Europe and we'll bring the Italians, the French, the Swiss, and everybody in. And so I kind of did it thinking, well, I've got to promote the record. But it was a deadly bore. It was really like, oh, no, not that again. So I kind of rebelled one day and I had a meeting. I said, look, guys, you know, let's make it something that we're excited about. Because if we're excited, we'll actually have a good time. So let's cook up some ideas that are like fun and they're different and it's not going to Cologne and with endless interviews. So we had some great little things. We had playbacks at the studio in L.A. We were working at Henson and we had these little playbacks for iHeart. These are great little sessions. We just cranked it up, played the album for them. So that was easy. That wasn't and then you had like, the, the concert at Abbey Road that you did. And then we did a concert at the Cavern at Club. We did a cavern. We went back to my old school and did a little concert there. So, you know, it made it fun. It made it interesting. And each little thing was different. And so it was great. Yeah, Capital, we're, we're happy. But I was happy with the ideas we were cooking up together, you know. As long as they were good ideas that were exciting everyone, we had a blast. You worked with Greg Kirsten and Ryan Tedder on yeah. this record. And, mm. and Ryan, you did the single for you. Yeah. Or some might hear it the way I do, mm-hmm. which would be a naughtier word. And we, and we can say it. We can, For you. There we go. It's uh, like if you, if you give someone a present, you don't say, this is for you. You go, this is for you. For you. Okay. F-U-H. Okay. So this is my story and I'm sticking to it. Okay. And yet I was immediately reminded of uh, something I grew up reading, a, a Grill Marcus essay in the old Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock and Roll about the Beatles, where he recalls hearing, 
I saw her standing there on the radio immediately in the days after the first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah. He writes, Paul's one, two, three, fuck opening. How in the world did they expect to get away with that? <laughs> and the thing is, is after I read that, I never heard it another way. I always heard it that <laughs> well, way. Well, I'll never hear it another way now. <laughs> I, it wasn't that, but I like it. Oh, man, you know, you know, that's a kind of nice thing when people kind of misinterpret what you've done or they put extra meaning on it. I mean, I did the song, Hi, 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 which we'll do tonight. And there's a line in it which I was kind of writing just like surrealist lyrics. It was like, uh, so I wrote, I wrote, uh, lie on the bed and get ready for my polygon. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. What's a polygon, you know? But people thought it was get ready for my body gun. I thought, you know what? That is better. Have you ever sung it that way? Yeah. Just, okay. So, you know, sometimes the, so misinterpretation, the misinterpretation becomes actually the- better than the uh, the real lyric, you know. Tell me, you've said that the songs you, you worked on with Greg, you brought into the studio, but when you worked yeah. with Ryan Tedder, he wanted to make it up in the studio. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about putting that song for you together. As you say, when I was working with Greg, which was most of the time, I had a lot of songs I wanted to record. So I came in and we worked on them together, but they were ready written. And then there was a period there where... Greg couldn't work, but I had a couple of weeks off. So I took one of the weeks as a holiday. uh, And then the other week, my manager said, do you want to keep the momentum going? You know, you're on a bit of a roll here. And if you want to keep it going, you know, I I can suggest other people you might work with, you know. So he sent me a few suggestions. And I liked what I was hearing that Ryan was doing. I didn't know much about him. Mm. But anyway, I phoned him up and we had a great conversation. So I said, well come to my studio in England and we'll just figure it out. We'll just think of something, you know. So I said, I've got a couple of songs. We could do these. He said, no, no, let's just make it up. Because we didn't have long. We just had the seven days. It might have even been five days. And so we just made them up and we ended up making up three tracks. And, and were you, when you say make them up, were you writing side by side? Were you throwing yeah, riffs around? Yeah, I mean, around? we were just having happening? ideas, you know, just throwing ideas out. He'd sort of say, what about, yeah, do da do da do I go, yeah, do da do da do So I'd go out on the mic and go, yeah, da do da do And then i think, well, I've got to stick some words in. Hey, you want to do do And I'd eventually put some words to it. And then we put a beat to it and I'd put some guitar on or bass on or whatever. And him and his co-producer, Zach, you know, they they just got grooving with the sounds and I'd get sort of thinking of what I was going to do on the vocal. They'd throw ideas at me. he said, what about that? I'd say, well, that one, let me try it, you know. So some of the things didn't work. We canned those. But it was funny because of this method of working, the trouble was often that, yeah, becomes, yeah, I love you, baby. And it's like, oh, this is a bit boring. So I said to Ryan in the middle of the week, I said, hey, you know, man, I said, I'm known for doing songs like Eleanor Rigby or, you know, Live and Let Die, which have got a little bit of meaning to them, you know. So I said, I'm not sure I can do this. Hey, I love you, baby. I said, well, I'll tell you what. So we decided what we would do was we'd carry on like that and then I'd revisit it and come up with what I thought were better lyrics. So that was how, how we did it. We made a lot of it up as we went along and thought that was good. But the bits I thought were a bit corny, I just rewrote 
and then went in and fixed the vocal with these new words. You know, a week or so ago, I was uh, in Los Angeles. I saw a band, Lake Street Dive, a terrifically talented band, and the will turn, and they, they do in their set, Let Me Roll It. Mm. And it's it's great. And afterwards, I was talking to them. Gee, that's terrific. And they looked at me, and they shrugged. And I went, yeah, it's a Paul McCartney song. <laughs> but then they started talking about For You. And I yeah. went, he's got a song out now. And the thing is... It's so on trend. Like, it's got these the drum track and these little drops in it. So they were, like, mm-hmm. amazed mm-hmm. at that classic McCartney melodicism up against the sort of modern yeah. touches that Ryan Tedder brought to it. Yeah, well, that's, that's what it was, yeah. Ryan brought that to it. And I say Zach, his co-producer is a young guy called Zach, and the two of them took care of that side of things What's about this, you know, let's, so they would take a little bit of my vocal and speed it up and drop it back in and do these little crazy things. And, you know, the idea was if I didn't like it, I'd go, oh, no way, man. But most of the time i go, oh, that's cool. I like that. There were three tracks. Only one's been released from that week. But the others are pretty good too. And then when you were working with Greg, that's over a longer period. Yeah. And you've said that one thing that, charged those sessions was seeing this documentary Howard Goodall did yeah. about the re-release, the 50th anniversary set of, of yeah. Sgt. Pepper's. Uh-huh. The, you, you actually had this experience of learning, wait, wait, that's how we did it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I wasn't really going to watch this because, you know, it's like I thought, well, I kind of know everything you did, you he's going to tell it. me. Yeah. I know about this. But then he started in on Penny Lane it hooked me in because he started to say, oh, now Paul wants to go higher, but he actually modulates down a key. I'm going, did I? Oh, wow, that's good. I'm getting impressed by this young 24-year-old's work, you know. Now I'm intrigued. And he got to this bit where he sort of said, and the Penny Lane piano. I thought, yeah, okay, I know, I played it. I know how that went. And he said, it's not just one piano. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, it is. What do you mean it's not just one? And he, so he starts going back to the multi-tracks. And he goes, well, there's, there's one piano. I said, yeah, that's it. And he goes, and then they've got this little spiky piano. And then he plays, and there's this very trebly little ding, ding, ding piano playing along with it. And he goes, and then there's this harmonium. And it, it turned out I'd forgotten, but we'd put all these layers into this piano that eventually sounds like, one very groovy piano, so much so that I believed it myself. So I went in the next day with Greg and I said, wow, wait a minute, you know. So this is a really great idea. So we started messing with like harpsichords and piano and mixing them and getting them very exact so you couldn't tell it was two pianos, but it was like a hybrid. That's kind of interesting way to work, you know. And, And you'd been working for almost a year at that point? So were you going back and adding or retexturing tracks well, that you'd tell already... Tell the truth, we'd been doing a bit of that anyway because mm. mm. of the re-release of Sgt. Pepper. I was inspired by how experimental we were and the inspiration that we'd had for Sgt. Pepper. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's a kind of good way to go is to just not make the same old record, just try and think outside the box and think, you know, what can we do now that, that's crazy? And at the same time, it comes out just like a song. 
you know, it's still in the end isn't isn't some crazy mess. It's actually Penny Lane. You know, your day in the life. It's it's a proper song. But the approach was very experimental. So we'd been doing a bit of that with Greg. But once I saw that program about it, we then started to pick apart some of the stuff we'd done, made pianos consisting of a few things instead of just the piano. Were there any particular tracks that you remember that you began to to rewire this way? I think the track, the, it's the opening track, the opening song. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I think we cooked the piano a bit there. Mm. And also we kind of detuned it. Because what was nice was I'd played it in a certain key and sung along with it, but I was finding the the vocals a little bit too high, and I was just going to struggle with it. But Greg, a good producer, says, why don't we just take it down a bit? You know, it'd be easier to sing. And what was cool about it was the piano I'd already played now got a little bit darker, and it actually is, is a bit one of his sounds. I think I heard it on... The Adele Hello. I listened to that piano. I thought, mm, this is one of Greg's tricks, you know. But it happened anyway to us, and I liked the sound of the piano. We were experimenting as we were. And the thing is, you know, it, it keeps it really interesting. So you'd go in each day, and instead of thinking, oh, I've got to do this song, I hope I do it good, there'd be a bit of that. But mainly it'll be, well, if I don't do it good, we'll mess around. You know, we'll get something that excites us. We'll put a crazy sound on it, and I go, ooh, yeah, I can sing to that. And it's often that. And we did a lot of that in the Beatles. I mean, John was particularly fond of putting uh, an echo when he was doing the vocal. So he would do what we called a bog echo. In Liverpool, bog means the toilet. You know, I'm going to bog. And the toilet traditionally has got a good acoustic. So we would call this little delay on the vocal sound the bog echo. It just gives you a little bit different feeling than when you're just hearing your own voice plain and straightforward. It's like your Elvis. somebody with a crazy sound on his voice. Gene Vincent, yeah. Gene Vincent, you know, whatever. It sounds like your old rock idols. So it inspires you a little bit, you know. It's interesting, you you mentioned the darker sound that Greg brought to that, to that piano. And then you you talk about John's experimentation because John was sometimes the one bringing in the darker energy, the slight darkness of, you know, like it's getting better all the time. It couldn't couldn't get much worse. Yeah. that's the famous yeah, it, example of a little addition that that just add, yeah. adds a different shadow. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we all brought that. You know, this is the thing. Hmm. What happens, you know, over time, things become legendary. So you'll get John was the dark one, Paul was the cute one. And that's not true because we each had a bit of that or the other. So George could be very much the one who'd bring that in. But, you know, when I'm talking about it, I always use that example of the song Getting Better. I go, it's getting better all the time, and John goes, couldn't get much worse. So, you know, that's a good example of how he would do that. But uh, often it could be George who, who'd do it just as much as John would. And I think, you know, I would sometimes take John's songs 
and darken them. I mean, Come Together was a very jolly little song when John brought it in. And it was like, no, we're not going to do that. It says 17-year-old you. What would a 17-year-old do? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, we would have swamped it out, man. So that's a point in case where John's thing was, and then I would, we had those kind of influences on each other, but the story sticks that John was the dark one, I was the light one, George was the mystic one, you know. And to some degree that's true, but we each had aspects of all those kind of forces. And Ringo too, you know, he would come in and sort of put some drumming on it that would be like, whoa. I mean, I had the song Get Back and I'm just going, get back, don't you, don't you, get back. And he comes up with... And that drum beat makes that record. You know, so I say, yeah, we're all four corners of a square, the Beatles. It was a very democratic group, so we all brought ideas in. Maybe John and I wrote most of the songs, but George wrote some of the best songs, you know, like uh, Something, you know, some of those songs he wrote. So Fantastic. sticking with this idea of... Here comes the, the song. <laughs> the legends that stick and what we might be missing... We'll soon hear the 50th anniversary box set of the White Album. Yeah. What surprises are in store for us? So the legend, of course, is that this is where things get difficult. There's a lot of tension during these sessions mm. that are spread over, I think, five months or so. And yeah. sometimes the group is recording as individuals rather than as a group. Is the legend there true or do you remember those sessions differently? You know, the thing is, because it was towards the end of the Beatles, all the forces that were later going to break the Beatles up, which is mainly business, to tell you the truth. There was a lot of arguing about business, and we didn't like that. We'd always traditionally just left that to someone else, but it got a bit dangerous to do that, and that someone else, it was a different someone else actually, was about to nick it all. So that got... This is the period after Brian Epstein's death and yeah, the start of Apple uh, yeah. Corps and- the, yeah, the someone else you're referring to is Alan Klein. There's a guy called Alan Klein, yeah. You know, it got dangerous. There was an idea that he was maybe going to uh, take over and take over all the money and all the stuff that we'd ever done. And, and that made it a difficult period. But, you know, the great thing was when we got in the studio, it all changed because we were just these four guys again. And it wasn't to do with business. It was now to do with music. And so sometimes we did record separately. I would do Blackbird, but only because it's a solo song. I did yesterday. And I said to everyone, okay, guys, what are you going to do on this? And they all said, well, we can't. It's a solo song, you know. It wasn't because we were arguing. Some of the great songs like She's So Heavy, John's, I mean, we all got right in there. There was mm. no, we were at peace when we were playing music in the studio. It was always a thrill. From the word go, when the Beatles were formed, to the word stop. You know, we always got in the studio. And even if we were arguing, that kind of got superseded by the music. And, you know, we argued like families argue. I mean, in the early days, it was always John and George arguing about who would have his amp loudest. 
they'd agree, okay, look, you know, we got to, yeah, well, let's put it at seven, okay, and they put it at seven, and then you, we'd be playing and you'd just see George kind of back towards his amp and go, nine? And then John had noticed, so he'd quietly sneak towards his amp, ten? <laughs> you know, and then that would go, hey, well, what are you doing? You know, that, that might cause a bit of an argument. But um, other than that, you know, that when we played music, it came good. Well, we're not going to keep you any longer. It is uh, almost time to, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, but uh, go and uh, mach chow. Mach chow, jawohl. That's what they used to say in, in Germany. Yeah. I remember the guy's name, Willi. And he was the Geschäftsführer, like the manager of the uh, the little club we first played in. And he used to come, okay, mach chow, mach chow. We tried to. We weren't very good at mach show, make show. In German, Come yeah. on, make a show in German. But sometimes there's people in the audience hold that sign up. Still. show! <laughs> so it's, it's stuck. You know, there we are. And that is it. I do have to go. Yeah, and no, I thank you so much for being with us, I do have to go on Mac show. Thanks very much for chatting. Nice one. Inside the Studio is an iHeartRadio original podcast. This episode was written and hosted by me. Joe Levy. We'd like to give a big thank you to Paul McCartney and Capitol Records. You can follow Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio or you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.